Welcome to Maker to Market. I'm your host, Amanda George, and today I've got another guest who I'm excited to introduce, but I'm going to allow him to introduce himself really briefly. George, take it away. Amanda, thank you so much for inviting me to the show. It's always fun to be on the other side of these things, just given how many I've done over the years. And, you know, I always say that these podcasts, at least when I've been on the host side, are really opportunities for me to learn from just incredible people out there. So thank you so much. Yeah, it's George or Jorge. People ask me all the time, is it George or is it Jorge? The fact is, I don't know. It's it, it was it's <laughs> technically Jorge, but you know, it was named after George Harrison of the Beatles, and people have always called me George. So my brain kind of defaults to George. But just in case anyone's wondering, it's it's literally either or. I'm currently the co-founder of Asset Mule. Uh, .ai. <laughs> That's the <laughs> URL we have right now, although the AI has not been integrated yet. It's early stage startup. Thank you so much because I know um, we connected over you giving some insight into that whole workflow from a product marketing perspective. So very much uh, appreciate that. I've been in startups for 22 years now, usually either on like the founder side or an early employee. So I've always been in early stage companies. I think the biggest company that I've ever worked for longer than like, uh, you know, 24 hours, because I have gotten jobs at like Target <laughs> and then quit Target after about, probably about a nine hour shift back in when I was in, in the high school, I think it was. But as a quote unquote adult, I think the biggest ever company I've ever worked for was Twitter and uh, worked there when we were still a smallish company compared to what it is now. I think we were probably like a thousand-ish employees. I got there via an M&A. So one of the, uh, the startups that I was involved um, launching and getting it to the point where we exited got me there. And uh, ever since that, um, you know, continued to work on a variety of different startups. Yeah. And for the audience, M&A just stands for mergers and acquisition. But I think, you know, thank you for sharing that. And one thing I, I think we've connected on is the startup culture, which can be quite crazy and hectic, but also some of the most rewarding experiences of our careers. And, you know, if anyone gets a chance to take a look at your LinkedIn I think both you and I can compete here for looking like flight risk in terms of a resume if you were to put it down on paper. I know just like yourself, you know, there's a couple of jobs that I've left off my resume just because they don't really provide a lot of value or it wasn't there for very long. You know, especially when you're working in startup land, it's very common to hear something like this and also very common to hear folks just kind of talk about, you know, not really staying in a, an organization for long, which, you know, if you look at my resume, you know, the longest I've stayed at any org is three years, which to me is pretty long, but I think it's also a benefit. And I think you can also speak to this as well. Jumping around from either org to org and then learning about different industries, I think has given me a leverage and a little bit more knowledge than most on how to move and be more adaptive. Would you say that's the same for yourself? Yeah, you know, I think I've had different perspectives on it. It's, it's some sometimes I've beat myself up because I've felt that maybe I wasn't patient enough or was too eager to move on to the next thing. And then other times I've been able to take a more positive perspective, like like you, you know, have. I think you know, in retrospect, it's actually allowed me to have a lot of different experiences in a relatively short period of time. I feel like I've lived three or four lives in 41 years. And certainly from a career perspective, I've had so many of those experiences 
that they've all really been, when as I look back, super valuable. So I'd say absolutely. Yeah. I mean, taking a look at your LinkedIn, I know you were in sales. You were also a software consultant. You've been an SC. You've been a founder. You've held a lot of different roles. How has all of these experiences and roles sort of shaped how you built Asset Neal today? Yeah. You know, what's interesting. I was interviewing my friend who's an author. She's got a book coming out and uh, her whole book was on like sales and revenue and it's called Buyer First. But one of the things that really stood out from the podcast we did a couple of weeks ago was this notion that there's some phenomenon. And I, for, I keep forgetting and I haven't listened to the podcast to, to dig in, but there's some sort of like phenomenon called um, X. I forgot exactly what it's called, but basically what it what it is is like this idea that the longer you're in an industry, you would think, or just the more experience you have, that you would have more confidence around that specific topic. And what I I joke around and I say now, after being in this whole startup thing, having worked for a ton of different companies, different verticals, et cetera, it's actually made me more, I think like more humbled now, actually. Because again, you think, oh, you know, you've been doing something for a long time. I've actually netted out, and this is just, as you can tell, an honest question or an honest response rather, is that, you know, I feel more, curious like i feel like i i almost in some ways have experienced a lot but in many ways it's taught me that every situation is so different and that yeah there are some fundamental truths that you can bring with you but you really have to kind of like keep a very curious perspective or approach to everything so that's the way that i would answer that is in some ways i feel like yeah i've seen the movie you know plenty of times but in other ways it's been just kind of a unique experience every time so the way that i apply that now to asset neo is like a much smaller ego um, in fact my ego probably shows up more about areas of insecurity than it is, than it does show up in things that I know 100% or like super strict or super specific, um, let's say, answers to certain things, right? And, you know, th- maybe 10 years ago, I would have said, you know what, this is the way XYZ is done. And that's it. And I know everything. Now I'm like, well, I've seen it happen this way. I've seen it happen this way. Let's observe and try to adapt quickly. No, that's awesome. And you know, I- One thing I really love about your response is the transparency and honesty that came with it, because I think so many times in tech, especially when you talk to folks that are in startups, I think we all feel similarly to your sentiment there. You know, you're questioning yourself, you're having doubts. Is this the right fit for you? And I think the reason why there's a lot of bounce and churn in the tech industry, especially within startups, is because we haven't found our footing. And there's a number of of reasons why. That may or may not be the case. You know, every startup is unique and different in terms of what they offer, how it's being built, the structure that's being set up. But it's really you moving around has given you sort of that different experience to see the structures from several different organizations to now structure your own company. Now, how does that also help you with the product development side of things? Because obviously on this show, we do talk quite a bit about product development. But one common theme that does come out of this is, again, all of our guests, including yourself today, have such vast experience and didn't quite stay in one area that it really did help them to develop in new ways that weren't thought of before. Yeah. So would you, you know, how would you have applied that to Asset Mule? 
well, I'm going to contradict myself here and say, <laughs> and say that there are certain fundamental truths that I actually do stand by. And one of them as it relates to product development is that you don't go into a silo, you know, or some sort of vacuum. You don't like go with your co-founders to, you know, I don't know, Mexico or like I've done Atlanta, Georgia, my first startup, my co-founder and I, this was back in 2004, 2005. We locked ourselves in a hotel room for three days in Atlanta, Georgia, and wrote out the product requirement docs or PRD for a product that essentially was like on paper, 5x more complex than we uh, anticipated, 5x more expensive or maybe 10x more expensive than we had resources for. And it was all based on our own creative ideas, zero user feedback. And so that's one fundamental truth that I would say that stands true, which is you don't go into, again, a silo or some sort of vacuum with your colleagues or your co-founders, come up with an entire product and build that thing and release it and then start seeing how the market adapts to it. No matter what, I think it has to be largely user or market driven, right? Now, that said, you do have these, I think, opportunities and and certain spaces where there's something super innovative that hasn't existed before. I think in 2023, those are far and few between. I think there's new technologies that come out, certainly, but there's these paradigms that have now emerged over the last, let's call it 20 years. I, I, well, that's my only experience, right? I can't talk about the dot-com because I was uh, in high school or something, but I would say that that those paradigms have existed or have been developing over the last 20 years. And so these new technologies can be leveraging those paradigms. But I think largely speaking, you have to listen to the market. You also do hear folks who say that users don't know what they don't know or don't know what they what they really need. I know Steve Jobs was sort of famous for for these sort of things. Now, let's remember that Steve Jobs also, when he was you know, running these experiments, had a base business, right? So that context comes from largely, right? And so, yeah, so I think it's ultimately this balance between your creative ideas and what the users or market is telling you. Again, I know I sit here and, and I give that a feedback, but even that, even if you're like listening to to user feedback or market feedback or design partners is what we've called it the last couple of years, beta partners, whatever you want to call it. That's also largely complex. And there's a lot of nuance to that too, because people can tell you things that are actually not true when it comes down to actually using your product. So again, it's a large, largely an experimental process. And I think that it always will be. Yeah, and it's kind of a a common thread between a lot of the guests on this show as well, where we talk about the critical component of research. And, you know, when you're getting that user feedback, research can be interpreted a number of different ways. And to your point exactly, sometimes a user doesn't really know how to phrase what it is that they're trying to communicate to you around that feedback that you as a marketer then have to go back and kind of read between the lines to understand it. Because sometimes I know when we're looking at community-based responses, I know at previous orgs and, and the comments that are coming through, I have to read the comment and then say, was this a lack of training? 
Was it a lack of RUI not being able to accomplish the task that this person was trying to do? Or what was the case? I really have to get down to the core of it because, again, with other research and other data solutions, I could probably paint a better picture around this response. And then it's also going to vary depending on the user, how active they are using this thing, you know, how much experience they have with solutions like this. Is this their first time playing with a newer solution? Have they used previous ones that were much janky? So there's a lot of nuances that come with the research as well around the individual that contributes it to us. Throughout your research phase, obviously, because I know I'm, I'll call myself a beta tester for your product as well. How's the research component going for you guys? What's the biggest challenges that you guys are facing? Yes, the biggest challenge is not getting folks on a research call. Let's say, you know, one of the ways that we've categorized these calls these days is calling them customer discovery calls. And, you know, I know this part of this, there's this whole like movement called uh, customer development. That's not the hard part. The hard part is actually getting folks to adopt the product. And, you know, people will sit there and that's, again, sort of to what I pointed to earlier, people sit there and go, yeah, that sounds cool. Oh yeah, that pain point makes sense. And you're like, okay, great. Would you use it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, we'll help you use it. And then what happens is they have an existing workflow, an existing set of tools or processes that they use to A, uh, deal with that pain point that kind of gets them by, right? Or gets them by in in a pretty reasonable way. Or it's not that much of a pain point that they even pay attention to it. Like people would generally exist in a pretty inefficient way for the most part, unless some catastrophic things happens or their manager or something comes up and says, Hey, you gotta, you know, the ship is sinking. You gotta like, you know, plug that hole finally. Right. So there's a lot of, uh, I think variables when it comes to adoption, but I think this is like, This is the name of the game, right? Like adoption of your product, especially these days where people can build things in a matter of minutes, right? Like literally back in the day. And I remember when I got in to to this whole software startup game back in 04, the agile development movement had just been introduced. Before that, I can't even imagine putting any sort of piece of software together in the way that it was done. But, you know, you had like Ruby on Rails, type technologies. And now there's a ton of different frameworks, right? React and blah, 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 JavaScript and et cetera. That's been uh, really prevalent. And these tech stacks out of the box have been developed. So again, you could develop something super, super fast. I mean, I've heard stories of like founders who have built stuff on like Google Forms (laughs) and got people (laughs) charged literally like MVPs and early products on you know, Google Forms, and they've been able to move on to like build real reasonable products and companies. And so the barrier to entry to building stuff, I think, has obviously been much lowered uh, a lot. And 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 then, um, but then you have this weird dynamic in the market where on one side you have a market that's now, as opposed to 20 years ago, wasn't used to using tools like it wasn't a thing yet. It wasn't even their consciousness to use a CRM system in the way that we do today or marketing automation or the plethora of other SaaS products that we use, let's say within the B2B context and also B2C, right? Like my mom was not using Facebook or social media 20 years ago. Well, now it's table stakes, right? So on one side, like the market is now more prime and uses things. On the other side, 
there are so many products out there that it's super noisy, right? And so how do you get people's attention? How do you get them to adopt it? Especially when there's literally a thousand, a thousand tools for, you know, one workflow, right? And so it's this interesting paradigm, but I'd say again, adoption, 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 you know, we'd like to call this part of this process, product market fit and finding that and so on. But that's really, I think, the name of the game. If founders can really, or if this are, these are product managers within an organization, can really kind of get through that adoption hurdle, then things become slightly more clear. No, and I agree. I think it's also interesting that we talk about adoption because, you know, to your point a little bit earlier, you mentioned 20 years ago, we couldn't think of having said processes, frameworks, and solutions at the tips of our fingertips. Now everything is available to us. And I'm going to mention our producer from our show here, just before we hopped on our call, he lost his phone and we were talking about how reliant we are on these smartphone devices. They are little computers in our pockets that we have easy access to all the time. But from an adoption perspective as well, I also, as a marketer, kind of have to ask the question, have we brought too much change to the average population that it's kind of slowing down adoption rates as well? And the reason why I bring this up is because if you look at how different generations even use a smartphone, from the time that you learn how to use a smartphone, you're going to keep a lot of those same habits the same. Even though Apple and, you know, Android devices have new updates, new iOS settings, all of these things as they release them, you don't see a lot of new features being adopted. So as a marketer, I think it's interesting from an adoption standpoint, you know, are we introducing things too quickly to the general pop where it's not being picked up quick enough? Because that's something I think we all kind of struggle with as marketers as well, especially in product marketing. You know, you want to talk about new features as they're being developed. But the adoption of those, I think, is an interesting kind of concept to look at, because I think if you're buying something net new, you're more likely to pay attention to all the bells and whistles. If you're already using the existing system, are the existing customers adopting to this as well? So it's a fine balance to kind of walk. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I have to really think about that. I I haven't thought about the... I'm an existing system and driving adoption just because I'm always super early, especially as a founder. I'm always like trying to get them to just use it in general, like that first widget that we've ever put out. However, I would say that it's got to be this collaboration between, let's say, your product marketing function and CS right, customer success and really being able to have a, a pretty well-organized and aligned organization. And, you know, if that's early on and it's an early stage startup, you might not have product marketing or you might even not have like that CS formal titles, right? But there's those functions that have to happen. And so I would say, yeah, you know, absolutely that that exists at least for me, it makes sense as a consumer of products. I automatically put my B2B hat on when we think about startups, just because that's what I focused on ever since my first startup in 2004, which was that social network. I think I'd mentioned to you before. Ever since then, I was just focused on B2B, but like there's even that threads functionality now, right? That people are going nuts about. And it's apparently like it's been, uh, I think, that you've had, what was it, 100 million users now that 
that have popped up overnight. First of all, I can't take on another social network like me personally. And maybe that's just kind of where I'm at. Like I struggle with just Instagram alone and LinkedIn, right? And a little bit of Twitter for social networking purposes, right? Twitter for me has evolved more into like my media channel, actually. So I I do consume it quite a bit from that perspective. But as a social network, I struggle with Instagram. And then LinkedIn is kind of this work thing, right? So like to add another one, I just can't even take it. Like I literally feel the physical sensations of overwhelm with all these tools. So that's an example where like I can't even adopt another thing. Yeah. And I think within, but again, that's a very personal thing. I don't know if others sense that same feeling. I mean, I, I can definitely say I'm definitely in the same boat as you. It's definitely digital burnout. Maybe also my time working with social media vendors. You know, I, I worked for social media listening platforms and the things that I've learned in that role also kind of make me question the viability of social media content as we move forward. And something that's always stuck with me, and it's actually kind of scary that you're seeing cases like this. And I remember in high school, we had a conversation about this is around the ethics of using social media. And one of those conversations is that we had in our legal class, and this is like grade 11, was if you are friends with someone on Facebook, does that now implicate you because you have a connection to that person online? But again, I think we're moving into this age where our online and our digital and and reality perspectives are so heavily connected that it's starting to feel like they're merging into one. And those are things that I have to think about too, as I move down my future and social media has gotten very overwhelming in the sense that, you know, when it first came out, it was fun. It was exciting. It was this goofy little space to have so much creativity and there still is a lot of creativity, but it's also evolved into something uncontrollable. For me personally, I still love Twitter and I have LinkedIn. Those are my only two social networks I have. I do not actually post anything on Twitter, maybe every once, maybe once a year, but I use it for informational purposes to consume information, to find out real life traffic data. So when I leave my door, I can plan around traffic or construction or whatever the case may be. In that sense, it is useful. However, with a lot of the new changes coming with Twitter, I am not loving it. I'm seeing a lot of content that's extremely disturbing and that has taken a toll on my mental health, which is why I actually started a digital detox five years ago where I slowly got rid of all my social networks. So just like you, threads, I don't care about, you know, whatever the next social media platform is going to be cool. To me, it's not that exciting. You know, just like yourself, I'm, I'm a little bit more focused on B2B tech than more the B2C side. But it's kind of interesting to see how these fads are are shaping our society today, too, and everyone kind of running after it. And another fad we have to talk about, because you've also sort of mentioned that you had it in your name, is AI. You know, you mentioned a little bit earlier, we were talking about having all these tools and placements and, you know, while you're collecting research, gathering that feedback. I think one of the interesting things about AI is that people are very on the fence about it. It's either you're pulling out your wallet and ready to spend that cash or you're ready to hide under a desk. And for me, I think I'm ready to hide under a desk because of the amount of conversations and being on this side of it. But do you also feel like with AI, it has been overpromised and maybe underdelivered in terms of marketing? Because we're seeing a lot of companies now use AI as a buzz term that I'm starting to feel like it's losing some of its actual value in terms of what it truly is capable of. And how does AI actually play into your world today? 
Yeah, a lot there. Maybe we can circle back to, I think, the more important topic here, which is like the impact of technology on humanity and, and our mental health, those sort of things. And I think if you think about AI, I was kind of uh, a bit anxious myself when I started to see you know, AI popping up and you've seen every headline about the various you know, scenarios and et cetera. Now, I think that my personal opinion is that AI has not gotten there yet. So that's the first thing. So I would say that, yeah, it's probably under under delivered. I don't know what like echo chamber I live in where, you know, the people that I follow and the information that I've exposed myself to has been largely this small, you know, world of technology that's probably like ahead of maybe the mainstream, just given what I've dedicated my adult life to the last, you know, 20 some odd years. So, you know, I do understand that there's that bias that of the information I consume that does exist, but I would say that it has under delivered a bit. You know, I've tried to use chat GPT a couple times and I understand that I, I haven't adopted the prompt, you know, learning these prompts in, in the way that I think some have, and they've been able to produce some really cool stuff. I still find that there's this level of humanity that's still missing from it. Every time I use ChatGPT to write something, it's this very sound statement, let's say a blog post, because that's what I've played with it for the most part. It's very sound, but it, it lacks some, you know, warmth to it, right? It lacks some flavor and personality. And I suppose, again, it's still early. I get that, right? I understand that. But I also, what I was more worried about is the laziness that I felt like it was creating in me where I would just ask it to write something and then I'd go in and edit certain sections of it to look, to fake it, right? Basically to fake it like I wrote the thing myself. And then I didn't really truly understand what I had written. Like if you were to ask me, tell me what you just wrote, I would I wouldn't be able to tell you. I'd be able to tell you the general state, the general theme of it. Like, oh, it's about, you know, whatever topic. But I couldn't really give you the breakdown. And that's, I think, concerning. The other thing that was evident to me was I wasn't digesting and analyzing and digging in and collaborating with my words. There's something that really happens in terms of a command of a topic that happens when you write each you know, word, right? You of a particular piece of content, like you're in it, you're wrestling with the concepts and you're deleting and you're rewriting and all that stuff. And there's just a process there that happens, right? And so, you know, I use the analogy of like how now we have microwave dinners and we you drive cars and we, you know, don't even like GPS. I used to be able to drive around my city and know where to turn like instinctually, like I was tied into some divine matrix. Now I think about, I never thought about it back then, but now I think about it, it's like, you know, I can barely get to places without putting GPS and it's kind of created disconnect to something that's, lives in in a more maybe esoteric part of existence right and i feel like i hope that ai doesn't start to do that for our minds 
right? And there's been a couple movies over the years that were considered <laughs> sci-fi. I'm forgetting which ones. I mean, there's a ton of them, right? Oh, For- there's Blade Runner. You've got Terminator. I mean, there's so many. There's so many that people love to bring up. And they're like, is that going to happen next? And you're like, no. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's interesting. But like, what happens when AI thinks so effective at like analyzing information, delivering information that we're just getting lazy. And, and again, I'm, I'm seeing it right now. Like I literally was like, I need to write my own posts because I'm not really generating a command of that topic and able to then regurgitate, I guess, what I had just written about, right? So it's those things that are happening right now with AI being so basic that are, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah. You know, we're talking about laziness and and how it's prompting, you know, we've already seen examples of students using it to write essays. How do you then verify it? And I know there was a teacher here in Toronto who actually created a bot that can analyze a student's essay to tell if it was actually generated by AI, which Mm -hmm. I thought was brilliant because once again, students are taking the easy route out by using ChatGPT to do their homework. Are you really learning anything then? Well, that's my point. Are you really learning? We're, we have to constantly learn. Like, I think that, you know, as professionals, even though we're not in school, we have to lo- constantly learn, right? And part of that learning process is actually writing things down and going through it and all that. So, like, you know, that resonates very deeply. Mm-hmm. Now, there's another side of the coin, which is pre-calculators and things like that. What were people talking about? Were they saying, hey, people are no longer going to crunch numbers in their head and and be able to do, you know, mathematics because now calculators are being used. It's an interesting paradigm to kind of wrestle with, right? It is. And, you know, it's also an interesting paradigm to deal with other tech now. An interesting use case I was reading on this morning was someone who utilized ChatGPT to actually rewrite the resume. And they were able to take every job post, put it into ChatGPT, match it with their resume to change some of the keywords or prompts so that they would be visible to whatever bot is looking at resumes. And I thought, damn, now we're going to learn how to cheat technology through AI. I was like, this is kind of interesting. I'm like, you know, there's a laziness factor and then there's using tech against tech now. I was like, this, I'm kind of excited to see how this is going to play out because, you know, if AI does get a little bit more advanced, I don't think it'll ever replace the human components such as tone, personality, those things. What it can replace is some of the tech gaps. Like, are you able to create something as simple? Like, I mean, if someone, if I was looking someone a little bit older, you know, telling them how to use a rule in Microsoft, like Outlook is like mind blowing. But if I could then tell them to go to ChatGPT and write the rule for them and show them how, that's half the work right there. I mean, you probably deal with it with your parents as well. You know, you're constantly showing them how to copy and paste on their phone or how to like do something very simple, a very basic function. But if AI can help us automate some of those to be like, hey, I can help you with that or I could teach you. I think there's some amazing opportunities for AI to kind of help. But uh, I know we're kind of uh, going over a little bit of time here, but I do want to that you or give you a, a chance to tell our audience where we can find some more information about Asset Mule and then, of course, about your own podcast. Yeah, well, thank you so much for for having me on the show. And there was one piece that I think I wanted to leave folks with because I think, you know, you had brought it up earlier and we sort of talked about this a couple of times from different angles, which is understanding that, you know, what we're engaging with 
online is only a part of the story, right? And that we have to really dig in. I think what it does for me is helps me remember that I got to dig in and understand my humanity more and be more empathetic and compassionate of others. Do you go ahead and tell the uh, audience where can we find your podcast? Where can we learn more about Asset Mule and uh, yeah. how can people get connected with you? Absolutely. Well, I'm glad we highlighted what I think are the more important topics in life in general, right? Because the happier we are, the more centered and grounded we are as human beings, the better we're going to do at work, right? But in terms of Asset Mule, you can go to assetmule.ai and sign up to the wish list or the, not the wish list, the wait list, which is, there is a wish list component, I suppose. <laughs> you can follow us on social. So Twitter, LinkedIn, we post a lot of information on there. I have a couple podcasts. We have the GTM pack, which is put together by Asset Mule, where we feature like product marketing experts like yourself, just GTM, go-to-market experts across the, uh, the the various functions. And then I have a podcast called Startups Unedited too, which is more about startups as a whole that I've been, boy, doing that one since 2015 now. So it's wow. uh, about eight years now. And I've just talked to some really incredible people from some of the really most uh, interesting investors in, in SaaS to incredible entrepreneurs uh, out there. And so I've been blessed to be able to, to do that as well. And you can check that out on Spotify, YouTube. All of them are on all the episodes are on those channels right now. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for being on the show. Awesome. Well, have a great, great afternoon. And thanks so much for having me uh, on your show here, here today. Awesome. Thanks, George. 